And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. To be honest with you, there were times when I was senior advisor to President Obama when I wanted to thrash Jake Tapper. He was the White House correspondent for ABC, smart and challenging, and sometimes a real pain in the butt. And I've watched his evolution now to become such a presence on CNN as an anchor of their show, The Lead. I sat down with Jake the other day at CNN in Washington to talk about his career, his books, including a new one, The Hellfire Club, a thriller that comes out in April, his cartooning, and the challenges of being a reporter and anchor in the era of Trump. Jake Tapper, great to be with you. Good to see you, sir. I, uh, so uh, I didn't realize... Because I always thought of you as a good Jew from Philly. <laughs> that Annoying, uh, an annoying Jew from Philly. Well, because I was a reporter and you were a... <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> but um, that your family on your mother's side goes way back to the Revolutionary War and not even on the right side. <laughs> it's true. It's true. My mom's... Uh, we did this in the, when we did the genealogy project here at CNN. Um, that, uh, you know, so it was so weird because I grew up in Philly and I was seven during the bicentennial and Philadelphia is just steeped in colonial America. And it really was when during my childhood and their teams are named the Eagles and yes. the Liberty Bells and the 76ers, 76ers and yes. everything like that. So when we did this genealogy project for CNN, uh, I found out that I actually had roots in the American Revolution, which is very exciting. But then, of course, it turned out that they were fi- <laughs> they were fighting on the wrong side. They were on they were on the British side, and then they lost, and then they yeah. fled to Canada, and then they were on the wrong side again in the War of eighteen twelve. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the, the way that the, my mom's side of the family, the Canadian um, side, which is my mom converted to Judaism, so yeah. so that side was Protestant, and the way it had always been sold to me was, you know that my, our ancestors went to Canada because slavery was not legal in Canada. Like, we were very pious <laughs> yes, and, yes. and high and mighty, and it turns out, no, we were on the wrong side. <laughs> we were on the wrong side of the American Revolution, and that's why we were in, uh, in Canada. Sounds shrewd that they went, though. <laughs> so there's yeah. some smarts there. Yeah, well... Except uh, picking the wrong side. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess, you know, when we looked at this uh, for the thing, for the project, it was, I guess a third of the country was with the colonialists, a third of the country was with the royals, and a third didn't care. A third was just, you know, whatever. And uh, yeah, so we, they picked the wrong horse. <laughs> but it's okay. And where'd your uh, dad's family come from originally? Uh, as you know, they're from Chicago. Um, but uh, uh, like way back when? Yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, my dad's grandfather, first of all, he arrived in Chicago. And we can't find any history of him before he arrived in Chicago from like, he came from a boat uh, through Canada, I think. But, uh, you know, just... Uh, Poland, Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, mm-hmm. just a lot of records that were destroyed during World War II. And and, and when did he get here? Your My, my dad's grandfather, uh, Tapper, uh, arrived around the turn of the century. And we can't find any records about him other than his arrival. It's really incredible. I mean, I can, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons why Ancestry.com is so cool. They should sponsor this podcast if they haven't because I'm about to I mean, their algorithm where you put in a name and then that just searches for that person uh, it's just incredible. So now we have like his, you know, his, um, s- you know, his swearing of loyalty to the United States of America and all this stuff from like 1901, 1902, these documents. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. I read, I, uh, in, when I was writing my book, my father was an immigrant and I learned, I didn't really know because he, he had such a horrendous childhood in the pogroms and huh. he really yeah. never wanted to talk about it. 
other than the, the, the kind of random reference to stepping over bodies with, when he and his father went to get bread and stuff like that. But They were from Russia? Or were they they from? were from what is now Ukraine. Okay. Uh, but uh, I didn't know a lot of the, the, you know, I knew a lot of family lore. I didn't know exactly what their route was. They did come through Canada, spent a year there, came down, but, you know, had and to do all this research. And No, they ended up in New York. Oh, okay. He grew up in, he, my, my family's from, I'm from New York. Okay. So I, 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 went, I, I went to Chicago uh, to go to college and just never left, but, uh, and left my uh, New York accent behind. Yeah, it's, but, uh, I don't, it's not there. I know, I know. It's, it's, I'm, I'm a Midwesterner now. I see. I don't think I have an accent, but Philadelphians hear at my accent at my well, accent good. all the time. So you want to be embraced by your hometown? <laughs> yeah, no, they do. They embrace me, uh, but but it's funny. Because you got a lot of pub around the Eagles. I did. Well, I've been an Eagles fan since I you know since I can remember football, and they were in the Super Bowl when I was ten, uh, and then again when I was thirty four. And uh, who was it? Ron Jaworski back then. Jaws, Bill Berge. Yeah. I mean, you know, yes. uh, Randall Cunningham in the second iteration, and uh, anyway. So this was incredible, and I and uh, the Eagles uh, reached out and got me tickets. Me and my dad got tickets to the uh, national to the NFC Championship game in Philly, and then Zucker was nice enough to get me tickets to the Super Bowl. Uh, so yeah, what a, just, what a what a game! Oh my God! I mean, the best football game I've ever seen in my life. But yeah, if, I'm was, biased. It, but no, I mean, no, no, it was even for those of us who didn't have a particular rooting interest. It was a it was a fun game. So you uh, you but you were raised. Uh, Pretty significantly in a Jewish tradition, yeah. Jewish schools and yeah, my um, well, my, so my my mom converted to Judaism and my dad was raised uh, conservative Jewish, uh, but probably not really all that observant. And then around the time of they divorced when I was about seven or eight, and around that time, my dad started getting more in touch with his Jewish roots. And so I started going to Jewish camps, and then I ended up in Jewish school from six, uh, six through twelve. And you lived with your dad. We did joint custody, uh, mm-hmm. so it was, you know, split down the middle. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, there was there was some sort of awakening that my dad went through, maybe right before and during the divorce, and uh, and so I learned a lot um, of, about about Judaism, and I spoke. Semi-fluent Hebrew for a while during when I was in college, uh, not really anymore. And and did you was there a spiritual component to it? I mean, I was raised, uh, you know, I was bar mitzvah and all yeah. of that, but it was it was, uh, and I feel culturally akin, but it was uh, kind of a compulsory thing, and so I being yeah. compulsory, I was resistant to it. That's probably what my kids are going through right now. <laughs> um, uh, for me, it was different because. Um, I mean, you know, I, I guess like any other spiritual journey, um, you know, I went through periods where I was very, uh, very into it. Um, you know, when you go to Jewish camps, and when I say Jewish camps, I don't just mean like everybody there was Jewish. I mean, we'd get up and we would pray. Uh, and then uh, every day, every day of the week. Uh, and then, you know, and then on the Sabbath, it was very, a very intense hmm. situation where, you know, you wouldn't, you couldn't use electronics and all that. Um, and, and there would be a lot of praying. And there are times in my life that I was really into it, and other times that I'm not. And I would say right now it's important to me, but I'm also at the phase of my life, and maybe this is a silly phase, where 
I think that, you know, I don't really think God cares too much about what I eat and uh, put in my body. And I think that God probably, if there is any sort of sense of justice in this universe, would prefer that I spend more time devoted to doing good deeds, which is part of Judaism, than praying. Um, and so, <laughs> I, so I, I think now, I think. Now, do you know, do you, do you have proof of this, or do you have two, <laughs> no, do you have two sources on this? <laughs> I have no sources on this. <laughs> I have not reported this. But I just, I just think that I think a lot of the lessons of Judaism uh, have stayed with me in terms of uh, trying to be a good person and trying to uh, give people the benefit of the doubt, and in terms of um, charity, uh, and that part of Judaism and the intellectual debate. That's, that's part of Judaism as well. Um, that has stuck, stayed with me much more than the, uh, the religious part of it, uh, and just in terms of observance, in terms mm-hmm. of... So we go, you know, we go to synagogue, my kids go to Hebrew school and all that, but... Um, yeah, you're reaching for the deeper... Not, not, uh, you're reaching for the sort of more spiritual elements, that the ethical constructs and so on. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes I'll see... I see some very unethical behavior by people who think that they are very observant, not just Jews, but, but all sorts of religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I see that all. I was just thinking it today. Somebody, a, 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 somebody who looks as though he is a Orthodox Jew on Twitter was attacking me. And, I, and I, all I could think of was... How does one look like an Orthodox Jew on Twitter? Uh, well, his his avatar was you know a guy with a hat and the uh, yeah. and the um, payas yeah. and all that, and I and all I could think of was um, you, this is not what I learned is being Jewish. Mm-hmm. This is you know that's 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 to me, and so I, I think a lot of I think I've seen a lot of that um, behavior again, not just Jews, yeah. Christians, Muslims. No, there's plenty of discussion of that. Certainly Muslims. I mean, you know, and a lot of people who consider themselves to be very pious doing some pretty horrific things. You, uh, you, got, you were involved in distributing a little newspaper around your neighborhood when you were a kid. You, yeah, JTs, you, if you please. <laughs> Those were, we had a, we had a name. That sounds contest. like an oil change. Thing. <laughs> no, JTs, my mention, <laughs> JTs, if you please. It was, uh, you know, we had a naming contest. I forget uh-huh. exactly. I was maybe four or five, something like that. So was that, were, were, was news and politics, were these things that were uh, discussed around your house? I have Politics was. We were steeped. I was steeped in politics. My brother too. Um, and I remember. I have very vivid memories of my parents talking about Nixon. My mom watching Watergate uh, on the black and white set in the living room. I. Um, my uh, dad is very proud. We had the, the mayor at the time in Philadelphia. Frank was Rizzo. Frank Rizzo. Yeah. Um, de- Democrat. Um, real bully. Uh, racist. Uh, yeah. And. Um, he uh, former police commissioner, police, former police commissioner, and very abusive. And he, one of the, the first drawings I ever did um, was a picture of Frank Rizzo, and it just said "Bad Rizzo, Bad Rizzo, Bad Rizzo" over <laughs> and over and over. I was my probably like four, and yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was. Re- we were really steeped in senses of of justice and bad guys who ran the country and the city. By the time you were a teenager, there was this. Huge race, uh, and in the first African American mayor of Philadelphia, Wilson, Wilson Good, Good yeah. uh, got elected, and there was a there was a lot of. I mean, I was covering City Hall in Chicago in the fir- the same year when the first African American mayor of Chicago, Harold Washington, sure, yeah. Uh, was that? Do you remember all of that? 
I do, but you know, I didn't look at it that way, even though I know that the election of Olson Good was a was a great and historic thing for Philadelphia because he was a pretty crappy mayor. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I uh, we weren't politically correct in the sense that we thought that just somebody, just because somebody was a woman or an African-American or, or Jewish or whatever, that we immediately just assumed and ascribed good things. He was a bad he was a bad mayor, and there was that horrible incident with the move yeah. cult where um, he ordered the police commissioner to drop a bomb and blew up a whole now, city. Ed Randell ran against him in the I first worked race, on that, race. Yeah, I worked on that campaign. I was a 17-year-old in high school, and it was my senior work project. And uh, I was an intern on Ed Randell, his first race against uh, Wilson Good, which he lost, lost in the primary. Yeah. yeah. And then Neil yeah, Osmond did the ads, you might remember. I do remember that. Yeah. I do remember that. Um, the cartooning. Yeah. That always. was something you picked up early as well. I was always doing that. Yeah, Charlie Brown. I was a big fan of Peanuts and Charles Schultz and Pogo through my grandparents. And, and uh, it was always just, it always just seemed to be part and parcel of the same thing, commentary and and uh, about the human condition or about politics. Tony Auth was the political cartoonist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, when I was in high school, he would like he would let me come by his office and talk to him about being a professional cartoonist. You, was you really were a Mad Magazine guy too. Huge Mad Magazine guy. Loved Mad Magazine um, in the in the seventies. I remember the first one I bought for like twenty five cents uh, had a fake Henry Winkler on the cover. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, but was, but every there are lots of people who, like I read comics voraciously. Yeah. In fact, one of one of the. One of the things I deeply resented was when I went away to college, my mother threw, she threw my them com- out. My grandmother did that to my dad. Yeah. What well, I heck? had like the first Spider-Man, the first. Oh. I mean, I had all of these things. Like, she's she's gone now. I think if she knew what those comic books oh. ended up being worth, uh, she would have been really appalled about it. But <laughs> Appalled yeah. that she threw them out and appalled that it, they would be worth that much. Along with my <laughs> baseball cards, my autograph oh. collection. But I don't want to... I don't want to get into my own problems here. <laughs> but uh, but lots of us were voracious readers of these things, but not everybody can draw. Yeah, well, that's just a skill that I have. I mean, I'm, look, I'm, I don't think I'm any great cartoonist, but I have a talent of some sort that I just think I, I had when I was a kid and, and just always loved drawing, and I did it throughout high school, and I did it in college. At one point, I wanted to be a professional cartoonist uh, after college. I tried, I tried to get a syndicated comic strip. It, I came close, but it didn't work out. And now um, I, I met Gary Trudeau uh, when uh, President o- on President Obama's first trip to 10 Downing Street. Uh, Gary Trudeau was outside, and I recognized it. I'm like, oh, my God, you're Gary Trudeau. He's the, uh, for those who don't know, he's the guy, the creator Doonesbury, of Doonesbury. Yes. Um, one of the top 10 comic strips of all time. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said that he doesn't even... He doesn't, when people come to him, when kids come to him who want to be cartoonists, he tells them to go into animation. He tells them to move to L.A. Don't even do comic strip cartooning anymore. It's not worth it. Newspapers are folding. They're shrinking the size of the strips, et cetera. So. You, uh, you got into trouble uh, with your cartooning in, the, uh, in, in, in high school. I did. What happened? So um, <laughs> I don't know what we were rebelling against. Uh, you, you were rebelling against a lot of things. So the, the way you were described by your classmates and teachers were you were a guy who was challenging authority even then. All, this will not come as a surprise <laughs> to viewers of your program. But. Yeah, no. And I remember actually uh, after this story that I'm about to tell you uh, happened, the principal telling me that I, you know, I had a problem with authority and I needed to figure out how to deal with it. when I Or I, become a journalist. Or become a journalist. Yeah. He should have just said that. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, no, we did a Mad Magazine-type fold-in 
in the uh, back of the yearbook where the ads are, and it said, you know, to the school, you know, congratulations on your 40th year, and there were these big balloon cartoon of 40th year, and then when you folded it in, if you knew to fold it in, like Mad Magazine has the fold in, it formed a an appendage, a male appendage, and it said, "For all the BS, eat, and, and eat not this. hands or feet, right? <laughs> no, and it was a, <laughs> it was a. There were, I mean, there. I had some co-conspirators who helped me sneak it into the yearbook because I was not on the yearbook staff. But uh, do they also have to do seventy-five hours of community service? Yeah, we all did. There were there were seven of us, <laughs> or six or seven of us, and we all had to all do of it. Philly must have been enhanced by this. It was a huge scandal at the time. Um, not it was not written about today. It would be. Uh, but it was a pretty within the Jewish community in Philadelphia. It was a pretty big deal. And then ten years later, I wrote about it for Philadelphia Magazine, and I said, which I which is and I, this is true. Um, I mean, I think it's funny and all that. But and but I'm embarrassed about it because I don't know what I was rebelling against. I, <laughs> I, what, I, what was I so mad about? I mean, you know, it was such a mean thing to say, and like these were. There was nobody I hated it at that school. There were no teachers that were cruel or but mean. But that's part of being, I guess, a, a, an adolescent. And uh, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, it's good that it. I could have. It could have been. It, it could have just been the appendage without the mean statement. Do you know what I mean? It could have been. It could have just been like. But I just had to had to have the last word and had to had to get one over on them and you know. But they found out about it before we graduated, so then then we had problems. Yeah, and then when you went to Dartmouth, you you were a cartoonist in the yeah. Dartmouth the Daily paper Day. there, and, and I saw somewhere that uh, one of your professors recognized himself in one of your cartoons in yeah. which the students were. Not paying a great deal of attention to what he was saying. But How'd that go over? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't meant as an insult. It, that one was. That was meant as an homage. That was. Uh, I just had to draw a, a professor at the front of the classroom, and uh, and I just drew my my history professor. It didn't say his name or anything, so I guess he just rec- the caricature was good enough that he. Knew you didn't it was. say you're lucky. It could have been a phallus. <laughs> right. Exactly. It could have. It could have folded. He doesn't even know what the bullet he dodged. He ended. He ended up going to, on to be the president of, of Dartmouth, and and he remains a. He's a friend uh, uh james wright uh, he's a really good guy and a really really nice man um and uh, and a former marine um and he uh he's a very impressive guy so it, he knows it was not meant to in in, in anything other when than, you uh, were done you headed out to california and you thought about film well i just didn't know what to do and then everybody was going to law school and yeah. i knew i didn't want to do that and there's no why problem. didn't you want to do that you're a guy who loves a good a good scrum. Uh, yeah, I don't. No, it's just not for you. No, and and uh, I wanted to do something creative mm-hmm. and something that I would enjoy. And business school or law school, none of that seemed appealing to me. And um, I, you know, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And I had been take I had taken a bunch of film classes, and they had been fun and enjoyable. And the people there, the film professors who were you know legit uh, guys. Um, one of them had written a whole bunch of. Hitchcock movies. One of them had written a bunch of uh, Disney movies, and they seemed to think I was pretty good at screenwriting. So I went out to USC, but I thought it was a huge waste of time the the program that I was in, and I, you know I was not motivated. So I don't mean that as a knock at USC. I'm sure a lot of people got a lot out of it, but um, I also found myself sitting in class listening to the Clarence Thomas hearings on my Walkman, um, which for kids listening, that's like a 
that's like an iPod or an iPad. What is it? I don't even know what kids use anymore. Yeah. But it's like your iPhone. You can I thought you were going to say, for the kids who are listening, what the Clarence Thomas hearings were. <laughs> well, they can look. They can Google that. <laughs> but I was listening. Uh, I was listening. You know, that, I was, that, that speaking of of uh, obscene references, yeah. that figured in there as well. Well, I just remember listening. I mean, I just listened. And then I would just listen to the Senate hearings. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just fascinating. I remember... Uh, Arlen Specter, just being, uh, who was my home state senator, being really nasty to Ted Kennedy. Uh, you know, the, the, the people of America don't need to be lectured f- about <laughs> from Senator Kennedy on the treatment yeah, of women. That was, Do you yeah, remember that? Yeah. And it was just like, you got some really good. I mean, not, uh, by the way, he had a, a point. A cheap but easy shot. But there. he had a point. Yeah. Oh, yeah, point. yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so you went, so you decided that you were interested in. Politics, kind of. It was more that I, I I didn't know what to do, and I came back. I did after I did a semester, and then I and then I le- also. By the way, I was paying for it. That also probably had, I, that's an important part of the story. Yeah. My dad was not going to pay for it, film yeah. school. Yeah, and so I had to pay for it. So I had to um, make the decision: was I really going to go into a hundred thousand dollars debt for this? Yeah. Speaking of paying for it, we got to take a short break. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back with Jake Tapper. So you went to work for uh, a woman who's running for Congress. A family friend, really. I mean, this Marjorie is, this- Margolis Mesvinsky, who, who I know as well and who became famous later in life as, uh, as uh, Chelsea Clinton's mother-in-law. Yeah, that was long after me. No, uh, but, but she actually became famous. Uh, she, you went to the Hill with her, right? Yeah. Were you there when she voted for the yes. tax bill? Yeah. This is, this is a remarkable story, actually, because she, I think, courageously cast one of the deciding votes for President Clinton's tax increase because he was trying to close deficits. And uh, the Republicans were singing goodbye Marjorie. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. So she was a family friend, and I was at home, and I had nothing to do. I had just come back from film school, and I picked up the paper, and I saw that Larry Coughlin, a 24-year moderate Republican incumbent, was resigning. And it mentioned Marjorie as somebody who— um, might run for the seat. So I called her. Um, again, I had nothing to do. Like, literally. Like, you know, and your parents are like, well, what are you going to do with your life? And yeah, it's like the graduate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we didn't have a pool. And uh, <laughs> so, so it was, and it was Philadelphia in the winter. So it was not, it was not quite like the graduate, but that same, that same directionlessness. Uh, and also there was no Mrs. Robinson. Yes, yeah, right. So he, he, Benjamin Braddock had it much better than I did, is the only <laughs> point I'm trying to make. So yeah. anyway, so we, we uh, so I just went out there and I started, I worked on her campaign and then she won. And then I came down to Washington. Again, like when you're, when you're young, right. you're just looking for anything right. to, to do. And so I worked for her. Um, and, uh, and you yeah, were her press secretary. I was her press secretary. And she um, said that she um, would vote against the president's budget because I think she. I think there are only three congressional congressional districts in the country where more people would be uh, hurt by the tax increase than would be helped by the. Because uh, it was really an upper end tax increase. It was an upper end tax increase. Was an affluent district. Yeah, and and but uh, and but there was also like a, the earned income tax credit was part of this bill. So most districts, it was a net positive yeah. for them. But we were one of three districts where there were so many rich people and so few poor people. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we spent months and months saying she was going to vote against it. But she also told the Clintons, uh, I will not be the one that sinks it. And the Democratic Party did a really cruddy job of protecting uh, vulnerable Democrats. And all these, like, chairmen voted against it and all these others. But all these uh, vulnerable House uh, f- women, mainly, 
uh, voted for it, and a bunch of them lost the next year. But I, I, I left a few months after her budget vote. Um, you said somewhere I, I was awful at it. I was the worst. I'm not a particularly good liar. Yeah. Do you think that's the job of a press secretary? I think it's part of it. Uh, I think spinning it, and uh, I'm not accusing you per se of lying. No, I mean you know. Um, but I'm not uh, taking it personally. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a degree of. Well, first of all, let me just say. I'm much more wired to run right for the uncomfortable truth. And that is not a particularly good quality at a party, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is just how I am wired. So, so. It goes back to the anti authority thing, probably. Maybe, or just yeah. I'm a jerk. But, but, uh, but the, the idea that it's not just lying, it's also like spinning. Talk, telling the story you want to tell, telling a positive story. And I can go back and I remember things that I have said as, spoke, as a spokesperson, whether for Marjorie or for other clients, that you can just set, see, like, I'm... Not good at it. No, I mean, Look, I, I, I will tell you, I mean, you know, I mean, have, I went from journalism to, uh, to politics. And um, the challenging thing is to, uh, is to tell a narrative and... And, and as you say, spin without being mendacious about right. it. I mean, and, and it's, and you know, it's hard and you've got to sort of live with yourself. And sometimes, uh, you know, I remember having to go out and try and explain after the first debate in 2012 in Denver, which you'll remember well, President, not the finest moment for President Obama, why it actually was better than people thought. <laughs> and it's like, they saw it. We all saw it. Right. There was nothing I really could say, uh, and I felt kind of stupid trying. But um, well, that's the, but right, but that's kind of the job is like right. you kind of have to like put. So even if it's not a lie per se, it is not right. Not it's so not. So you weren't truth. comfortable with that. I'm bad at it. There was a time when I worked in PR. After I left Marjorie's office, I worked in PR. Yeah, which seems like the same thing. It's the same thing. It's worse. Um, but again, I was just like I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, it hadn't dawned on me to do journalism. In the PR job, it dawned on me to do journalism, and then I got you out did. and I started doing journalism. But I remember one time we were representing uh, Hooters. Hooters was being threatened with a lawsuit from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for not hiring men as Hooters girls. This is a real thing. This really happened. And I remember <laughs> one time, because they put me on the, cl- on the account, which was a bad mistake and for any number of reasons, but but you I remember write, write some Hooters briefs for us. <laughs> but I remember one time um, talking to a reporter, and I said something like, "You know, it's not like the girls are naked." It's like that's not what you say. You're supposed to say like, you know, these are these are lovely ladies wearing. Uh, they're you know they have clothes. You know they're, they're they have. Clothes on from he- from from neck to yeah. neck neck to f- whatever. I mean, like yeah. it's not like these girls are naked. It's, not, it's just awful PR. I mean, like I re- I, re- I, re- I, re- I don't know why I thought about that the other day. Just like what a stupid thing to say. I think it was inside. I was just like saying, "You're not good at this. Leave this business." You went to uh, wait a second. I did yeah, handgun so- control for like a few months in there. Yes. Yeah. And um, what drew? What, what, what did you do that? At, because you were drawn to the cause, or I did that because I hated working in public relations. Uh, Jim Brady and Sarah Brady uh, were there, and they were good people. Mm-hmm. 
and it was, it's hard to remember this now, but it was a bipartisan organization yes. at the time. Well, yes, they were Republicans. They were Republicans, and gun control was not what it is today. Um, and, um, I mean, they were, you know, we were talking about things like trigger locks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so uh, that was just, I, I, again, I was, at, at that point, I knew I wanted to be a journalist, and I was just trying to get a full-time job in journalism, and I left the PR firm, again, I was awful at it. And yes. so I got another job that made a little bit more money. And it seemed like I might be a little bit better at it And uh, while I got waited for the journalism job. And then but the then journal- you went to the city paper. Then that in, was the first full-time Washington, journalism. Yeah, which first. was sort of a legendary place when you were there, primarily because of the editor, David, David Carr. Carr. Yeah, he's the one that convinced me to come work at city paper, take a, whatever it was, a one, you know, my salary went down a third um, but go do what he was doing and learn how to do journalism at his feet, which was one of the best moves, one of the best career moves of my life. I'd say three, the three best career moves I ever had were, or four, going to City Paper, going to Salon, going to ABC, and then coming to CNN, those four. So David Carr, uh, we, we had Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, uh, here yeah. some, some months ago, and uh, you were there when he was there, right? Well, I was full-time. He was some kid at Howard University that would come in and do music reviews, and, and, uh, and Carr would teach him how to write. Uh, in the, I mean, now he's Bri- li- literally, beyond a, brilliant. literally yeah. a genius award yeah, winner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but David saw in him that, and, yeah. uh, and he was always a great I knew David had his own interesting history. He was yeah. a drug addict yeah. and all, all that, but hard-bitten yeah. news guy, like the editor that everybody always wants to have. He was legendary. And, yeah, but and tough. I didn't, I, very tough. It was very tough. And I have to say, um, I could have probably stood another year there, but I was there for about a year and change, and then Salon.com came hiring to cover the, the, the 99-2000 presidential race. And which was uh, the 99-2000, yeah, but which was the, what was the period of time in which you dated Monica Lewinsky? Oh, so that was, first of all, it was just one date. (laughs) Yes. Right. Uh, So that was, that was my first cover story for City Paper. Um, And the date had happened in December 97. And I went on vacation with my dad. uh, And I had gotten two offers to work either go work at Philadelphia magazine move back to Philadelphia and work at Philadelphia magazine or uh, stay in Washington and work at Washington City paper because I'd been working on clips so the freelance. story breaks in January of 2008 I'm sorry 98 98 so I'm I'm uh, I'm on the tarmac on my way back from vacation with my dad and I pick up the Caymanian compass and uh, I see this this story and I can't believe it because this girl is you know I went out with her just a few weeks before and I came back and I called Carr, and then we worked for a few days on this cover story about, it's really kind of a rumination on politics and power and how everybody was just frothing to destroy Monica, to destroy Bill Clinton. Just It was just, Washington was mad. And, um, you know, I think it pretty much holds up. I, knowing then what I know now, I wouldn't call her chubby or zaftig, which I did in the story. But beyond those two words, um, I think it holds up about... You know, I ran into her in New York uh, during the 2016 campaign. Mm-hmm. I was at a restaurant. She's a lovely, up. lovely person. Yes. And uh, and I, I found myself thinking about the fact she was now 42, 43 years yeah. old. And her entire adult life, you know... It's not fair. ...has yeah. been defined by this... 
He's been uh, allowed to experience. move on. Yeah, the, the men are always allowed. She's to move doing on. great work on the issue of cyberbullying. Yeah, uh, for which she deserves great credit. But, right, but man, she she'll be off, always that will always be. You she know, should with, be off somewhere with kids and a husband, and you know, doing whatever she wants to do, and able to walk down the street without people looking, and and uh, and she won't. And it's a it's a tragedy and. It's really unforgivable that Bill Clinton did that to her, that President Clinton did that to her. Was your piece a sympathetic piece other yes, than the, very much. the Zoftik reference? I like Zoftik, by the way. I mean, it wasn't meant unsympathetically. But yeah. um, it was, uh, uh, yes, it was a very sympathetic piece. Mm-hmm. And let me also just say uh, that I, that knowing her at that time and knowing, uh, and I was 29 and single, the idea that a married father, president of the United States, would take advantage of her, and I knew her exactly at that moment, is it's it's just reprehensible. Yeah. I mean, it is clubbing a baby seal. It is she was a very very open openly vulnerable young twenty one year old girl, uh, and um, it's it's there's something wrong with somebody who takes advantage of that. You went to uh, Salon.com and you covered, as you mentioned, the presidential race in uh, 1999 and 2000. And you were blogging at a time when everybody else was more or less doing more conventional coverage. Um, You were sort of a forerunner of what would become the norm in journalism in that you were filing. uh, Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I was very lucky. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. So I was, it wasn't really blogging. I was writing stories. They were just on the internet. Yeah, I and understand. They, and they were, um, so this is 99, 2000, and it's impossible for, I'm looking around at the young faces in this room here, and like, it, it's, it's impossible to explain this, but the Washington Post, the New York Times, ABC News, but nobody updated anything ever. Yeah. So I would, so I'd be on a bus and something would happen and I would write it and I would file it and I would send it through my cell phone. And Salon would put it up, you know, half an hour later after editing it. And the New York Times wouldn't run it until the next day, yeah. like 6 a.m. That's the world in which I grew up in journalism, where you actually had, like... So I scooped everybody. Know, but not because I was so... Yeah, but not because I was so good, but because they were because they worked for dinosaurs yeah. at the time. And thankfully, the Times and the Post and everyone has realized you can't just do that. They're big. I remember the Washington Post, they had this big move where during the presidential race, they decided they would do, like, one update at, like, four PM. That was their big move. And it's just, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, that was, I talk about being in the right place at the right time, because I would scoop everybody on all sorts of things, because it was me and the Associated Press Wire. And other than that, no one saw anything. Yeah. Well, the dinosaurs noticed you. Yeah. You got hired after that by, by ABC. Yeah. But uh, you also wrote a book about that race called uh, Down and Dirty, The Plot to Steal the Presidents. Yeah, it was about the recount, just the recount. Um, and the 36 days that I spent in Tallahassee and Miami and Broward County. Um, and it was... Uh, it was kind of a pox on both their houses sort of story, it, was it? Yeah, I mean... Because, do you look back at it at now? Would you have done it any differently than... Do you think you did a fair job of laying the thing out? I think it was fair. And I think it was... I don't... I, don't reg- I, I regret some... Uh, I regret a few cheap shots I took at people here and there just because I thought, you know... I. Everybody, when they're in their twenties, thinks that they're like the next Hunter S. Thompson. And yes. Like, so there's a lot of that that I that I wouldn't have done again. Um, but uh, generally speaking, in terms of the conclusions, 
Yeah, I've, I, it, the 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 Gore camp. Look, the Bush campaign was trying to prevent votes from being counted. That's that's horrible. The Gore campaign was never trying to get all the votes counted. They just wanted the ones in the Democratic counties. That seems just as uh, unprincipled as trying to get none of them counted. I mean, the bottom line is you should try to get all the votes counted. And there were experts on the Gore campaign saying statewide recount, that's the only way to do it. And they were being ignored. And if they had listened to them, maybe Al Gore would have been president. Yeah. They didn't handle it particularly well is the bottom line. No. I mean, but but I, I, I mean, looking back on it, um, see, the thing is this, like, I could see why people were like, well, the U.S. Supreme Court made such an, an unfair decision. And whoever, who makes a decision saying, and this is the only time we will be invoking this principle? It's true. But the Florida Supreme Court was doing the same thing, but worse, less yeah. skillfully so. So there I, I were. Wonder, I wonder how much, um, you know, we've seen such a sort of toxification of our politics. I wonder how much of it began there with that recount and it the was suspicion that the on the part of those on, uh, on the part of democrats that this was a this was a, 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 a just to borrow your phrase a dirty deal it was a, a, it was dirty back then but it was like nothing like what we see today right. um, and al gore's behavior after the supreme court made his decision was a was a template yes, for being it was. for losing well yeah it was he did he 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 behaved as a patriot in that uh, in that um, you you went to ABC. Mm-hmm. How did you make the transition from print to uh, television? I'd done a lot of um, you know talking head stuff on MSNBC and Fox, and which was very different than both of them were very different than what they are now. Uh, and CNN. I had a short-lived show on CNN that was just a bunch of young talking heads. It's called Take Five. It ran in two thousand one. Um, its last show was right before 9-11 uh, when suddenly... Everything was pretty grave. And yeah, then and, and nobody wanted to hear from five young pundits sitting around a table. Uh, well, uh, that's on, a pretty marketable idea these days. Jay Carney was one of the, those young pundits. Oh, was he? Yeah, John Dickerson. I mean, there were, there were a few of us. Anyway, so I had clips, and then I'd, I'd done a few TV things to, to, get a, to get a reel together. I did some stuff for Sundance. I did, I'd worked for VH1 for six months. I learned how to do TV journalism and then I had a reel and I took it to ABC and they knew my journalism from Salon and then they saw that I could do TV too. And how was the adaptation once you got over there? It's a big change. I mean, you have to learn how to do a whole bunch of performance, you know, they call it broadcasting, but it's really about performance in terms of how you perform in front of a camera, how you modulate your voice when you track, doing the doing the voiceover parts of it. There was a lot of um there was a lot of adjustment, and then psychologically, there's a lot of adjustment too, because um, there was there's such a limited limited time on broadcast television, as opposed to Salon or now here at CNN. Um, you know, there's Good Morning America, uh, World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. So you're fighting. You're you're just fighting to get fighting to get on. And ABC at the time, and I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been there in a while, but ABC at the time was created. F- for people to compete against each other, and I, th- I found it kind of unhealthy and um, uncollegial by, by, on purpose. Mm-hmm. They pit people against each other. Creative tension. Yeah, I think Rune Arledge did that when he kind of took over, and he put mm-hmm. Diane Sawyer against Barbara Walters and Ted Koppel against Peter Jennings, and 
but it but it, it seeped down and it was really unhealthy and and uh, toxic. You uh, you were the White House correspondent uh, during the when I was there. Yeah, uh, for the first four years of Obama. So, uh, and you were you were you asked provocative questions. I was tough on you US. and uh, and and my buddy Robert Gibbs would spar yeah. from time to time. And that's the job. Yeah, but let me ask you. I, I it is the job. Yeah. Uh, do you do you have any concern that these White House briefings become sort of a venue for theatrics? My concerns more. I, I mean, yes, sure, that happens. And I could see I learned lessons in that first six month to a year period with Gibbs uh, that that uh, that I carried that carried with me for the rest of Gibbs and then on to Carney, which had to do more with the hotter the question, the cooler the, the, the delivery. Um, and you'll see, I asked some of the toughest questions to Carney, but they didn't get the kind of attention that some of the initial ones with Gibbs did because I was much calmer. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes, but really, truly, what I feel the White House, um, when the White House correspondents are working best is when they're all kind of in it together and they're like, well, you just told Julie so-and-so. Mm-hmm. But yes, right. And when that Because it's ha- so easy to, to, to say, to not answer the question, go to the next questioner and try and cut that line of questioning off. It's so frustrating. And, and, and now as a spectator of it, you can see there's so many smart people in that room and they're, and they're so wise and, and, and many of them are really tough uh, and they work so much better when they work together and when they, when they um, try to like, well, you didn't answer Fred's question. Uh, and, and that's how you really... That's how you speak truth to power. Sometimes you really need to work together. But I, yeah, sometimes I wish that I had Gibbs and I really, you know, had a contentious relationship uh, on camera and off. But but um, uh, I also think that that's kind of healthy in what it's supposed to well, be. Well, I, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I mean, that is everybody's doing their job, right? And by the definition, that's going to lead to those. You can still respect people uh, and uh, have those kinds of confrontations. It's, uh, but uh, although, you know, your reputation is a, a guy who sort of leans in. Yeah. You don't shy away from those. You, you enjoy it. I think that sometimes those questions need to be asked. And, you know, I thought you guys, I thought the media took it easy on you guys. I know you've said that. <laughs> it didn't feel that way all I'm the sure time, I, I must say. We're going to take a, another break and we'll be right back with Jake Tapper. I spent many uncomfortable minutes in the chair when you were filling in uh, for George on the Sunday show at ABC. Um, you didn't you didn't get that job, and yeah. you and you moved over to CNN. Um, that was also a change in that cable television news is different for the reason that you said before, which is now you're. You're a pervasive presence on yeah. television, and t- and cable needs to fill the time. Uh, so tell me about that that change. Well, so I don't I don't want to shy away from answering the, also about the the not getting the this week job. You know, my basic take on that is um, Bob Iger uh, wanted to wanted to after after George got Good Morning America. Yes, Charlie Gibson went to World News Tonight. George Stephanopoulos went to Good Morning America, uh, and so there was an opening at Sunday. And I was Georgia sub. I wanted the show, but Bob Iger uh, wanted to, and uh, and brought Christiane. I mean, Christiane Amapour, who is 
yeah. a legendary journalist. Right. It's you know it's, it's hard to argue with that. Right. Um, and then after it was decided that you know that her expertise in international affairs, which served this week incredibly well during that period of the Arab Spring, yes, and she was providing scoops at the Qaddafi Palace and with Mubarak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but after after that died down, and and maybe going to Iowa wasn't as as uh, natural for her. Um, they brought George back, and that was disappointing to me. But again, these, this is losing jobs to. Christiana Amanpour and George Stephanopoulos. Right, of course. So, but it does. It also signals that maybe the growth opportunities. Well, that was that was my, that was my conclusion, and mm-hmm. that's the only reason I left ABC is because I loved ABC and I loved the people there. But I wanted to be an anchor, and I wanted to be an anchor full time, and I thought that I had I could do it, and I could do it well. Um, and they couldn't provide any sort of path. Uh, so CNN um, had the best offer, which was the four o'clock. Show and then after a year or so of doing that, uh, they asked if I would do the Sunday show, and it's just been—it's great. I mean, it's hard to—I mean, literally every week, my wife or I say to the other one, "I'm so glad we came to CNN." Yeah, just because. Well, and you've—you—you've your profile is 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 very high. I mean, you—you've had some of the most uh, some of the most interesting, provocative interviews uh, in a very interesting and provocative time. Yeah. Well, there's no shortage of. <laughs> people to interview about uh, uncomfortable subjects. So, uh, you know, and I, obviously I'm at CNN as well, and I, you know, and I've enjoyed that experience. Um, I do wonder about the sort of demands of cable Yeah. in that you do have to fill every minute every day, and it's such a competitive it is. environment. And, and it's weird because, if I can just interrupt for one sec, it's weird because we're outflanked by people who are nakedly appealing to ideological, if not party, partisans. Right. MS, not everybody, but most hosts. Well, their are, business model is clearly they want progressives. Right. And this, and the opposite for for Fox. And we are trying to be this middle of the road. Although, thing. isn't it tough? I mean, in in the era of Trump, uh, it seems to me if you if, just by reporting facts, if he finds the facts inconvenient, right, then he casts it as a partisan attack. Yeah, and that's weird because um, whenever anybody says that to me, I say, you can't find any evidence about what I think about his tax plan or repealing Obamacare or uh, DACA or uh, immigration, I mean, or trade or or any of these issues, terrorism or ISIS or Syria. or I mean, I don't, I'm agnostic on that. I want to have full and interesting and provocative debates and call balls and strikes, but... I don't. I don't have. I'm not putting out there a, an immigration proposal. But it's fair to say that you you've hit him hard on uh, decency you know, and truth. Those are the two areas where I draw a line: decency and truth. And you know, and I have on those two subjects, and I think he has an issue with them. Those mm-hmm. two subjects. And does it, and, and how do you make that judgment? Because I know that you prize your your. Uh, I don't want to call it, I guess it's a brand, a brand as a journalist, as being tough on all sides and so on. Um, and I know you, you, some, you have had some very powerful commentary at the beginning of your show on some of these issues. How do you, um, issues that you would put under the heading of decency and truth, you know, how, how, how do you decide, well, this line has been crossed and I am going to call him out on that? At 
the risk perhaps of looking as if I am going after. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, but I mean, there is a, cha- you know, this is a very challenging environment for everybody in it. Um, it's challenging for Speaker Ryan. It's challenging for Chuck Schumer. It's challenging for Jeff Flake. I mean, everybody's trying to figure out how do we respond to this uh, Trump brand of, um, I mean, I guess you could you could say d- disruption. And he disrupts a lot of things, and some of them I don't have a, an opinion on. I mean, I don't, I, is it really that crazy to say that our trade deals have been written with the Wall Street and the Chamber of Commerce in mind more than American workers? I don't think that's so crazy. Right. I mean, there, there are certain things, positions he said, um, you know, should we, I mean, is it really crazy for us to have border security? Not really. I mean, that's his position, and it's perfectly legitimate to debate. Um, but we're all trying to figure out where those lines are for ourselves. And um, that's just where I think I've, I've drawn them. And, you know, amazingly, he continues to make subject for debate whether or not it's acceptable to march with Nazis or whether or not somebody who has been credibly accused by several women of molesting young teenagers should be a Senate candidate or this last week, mm-hmm. whether or not somebody who's been credibly accused by two ex-wives of domestic violence uh, should be referred to as if uh, he's about to be nominated for a, a sainthood or whether he should be condemned. I mean, these are things that um, 40, 50 years ago, I thought we'd settled. Maybe maybe longer than that, 80 years ago, I thought we'd settled. I mean, this is just not decent. But uh, the, where I wanted to go as well is because of the competitive pressures for cable, I mean, Donald Trump kind of gamed that system, didn't he? He understood it when he was a candidate, one of 17 Republicans. And I, you, I think, hosted the first Republican debate in 2015, or one of the first Republicans. The second one, yeah. Uh, you know, and you had to pair the cast of thousands down to, you know, eight or something. He cut through in part by his, you know, for a guy who now is reticent about doing interviews, he was... He was available for everybody. He was available for the, you know, he would have been available for the home shopping network if they had offered him time. And and he got the time because, as he would say, he was good TV. He was the guy who was going to light himself on fire. And he was good TV. And he ran for long, long segments, not just on Fox, but on CNN, on MSNBC. Uh, Didn't he kind of, didn't his knowledge of, television sort of aid him in his propulsion to where he is now? Well, there are, two, there are two issues. One of them is the airing of full rallies from start to finish with no fact-checking or anything like that. And I think Jeff Zucker is alone among the cable news presidents to acknowledge that CNN did too much of that in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I didn't do that. Um, I'm lucky enough that my show is on at four. I didn't have to make that moral decision. Uh, but but uh, I can understand why people thought that was a problem, and, and I agree with Jeff. We ran too much of it. Um, in terms of accessibility, I can tell you, under, under no uncertain terms, we tried to get everyone, and they subscribed to the old model right. of, look, I launched on State of the Union in June 2015. That was my first State of the Union, the Sunday show. Um, I begged Hillary Clinton and then Jeb Bush and then Marco Rubio. Well, I'll give you the whole hour. We'll go to, I said to, to Rubio, we'll go to, we'll go to Miami. We'll walk around Miami. 
and they wouldn't do it. Yeah. And it was because they subscribed. And a lot of the guys and gals that are thinking about running in 2020, are they're still subscribing to this old model. Yeah. But Trump did it. And we, we would have taken phoners from any of these people. And we would have and we begged them to come on our shows all the time. Trump said yes. When you were moderating that first Republican debate in 2015, um, did you know as you were sitting there uh, that Trump was in some ways dominating the event? Well, he was number one in the polls, so he was in the center of the stage. But the realization I had um, was that there was no Republican that was going to be willing to do what it took to stop him. Um, and that's, that was pretty clear from the very first question. Uh, Carly Fiorina had waged a public relations campaign to get on that stage, uh, even though she didn't really quite fit the criteria. Um, and I went to her first and said, uh, Governor Jindal had said earlier that day. Who was not on the stage. Who was not on the stage. He was in the undercard debate. Yes. But Governor Jindal had said earlier that day that he, that he, wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be comfortable with President Trump's, with Donald Trump's fingers on the nuclear button. Uh, how do you feel? And she wouldn't bite. She took a powder. She took a powder. And then I went to Jeb Bush uh, and he did the same thing. Yeah. And at that moment, I thought, they don't get it. They think he's going they think that this guy is, uh, you know, like Michelle Bachman and he's just going to go down in the polls. And he's 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 sensing something and all of them are hoping someone else is going to take him out. And what they don't realize is that the only way to take him out is to stand up and be the one to do it yourself. And none of them none of them had had the guts to do it. And uh, that's why it gets me so mad when all those consultants blame Donald Trump's rise on CNN or, or the rest of the cable networks, um, they wimped out time after time after time. And by the time they finally decided to like really take him on, it was always too late and they looked pathetic. I mean, Rubio didn't do it until the last week. And, and did that, it badly. Did it badly. Same thing with, uh, with Ted Cruz. Donald Trump was his best friend until all of a sudden Donald Trump was assailing his wife and his father. I mean, and even John Kasich uh, uh, really uh, did not frontally challenge Trump until very late in the campaign. Yeah. So, yeah. They, they expected us to do the hard work. Yeah. You know, there's an old baseball manager in Chicago named Eddie Stanky, managed the White Sox in the 60s, and he used to, and he used to say, no risk baseball is second division baseball. Right. And that's true here as well. Trump was willing to take the risk. Now, I don't know if you saw uh, Axios was reporting that his strategy for 2020 is going, or for 2018, I should say, is to, is to try and hit, push the button on these hot button things like the pledge yeah. uh, and ne the NFL player yeah. and, the, and the kneeling. Um, and he, he still, and the truth of the matter is, when he does those things, he does dominate you, you can argue whether it's helpful or not to him. He thinks it is. He's trying to arouse his base. Mm. Uh, but uh, he, he, he knows how to push those buttons. He does. Um, I think uh, there is an exhaustion factor that I wonder, I wonder about how much continuing to press those buttons will be appealing to. I don't doubt that there's 30, 35 percent of, of, the, of the electorate and who supports him and no matter what. But I, you know, people are people are exhausted, and yeah. I don't know that um, 
that constantly doing that is going to be the ticket in, yeah. 2000, in 2020. Yeah, I think, like I said, they're worried about turnout, and that's their thinking as just putting my strategist hat on. I'd be concerned about an economy that's pretty strong uh, and uh, – some indices that would normally point to a popular president that have held that that have not proven to work for him and the reason goes to style temperament entirely you know it's not about the governing choices i mean you you could maybe argue uh, on the margins it is uh, but you know they didn't succeed in repealing and replacing obamacare so there's been no real fallout from that uh, and yeah i mean it's all this, you know, this the, the indecency but, yeah. and the weird tweets, and yeah. I mean, it's it's. But it's just, you know, I mean, it, this there is this this very strange symbiosis between uh, now our industry and his and his political what he views as his political needs, but he understands that he can turn a whole news cycle with a tweet. Mm-hmm. He can turn a whole news cycle with a comment, and uh, and he does it. I, you know, I think people uh, sort of, I think people don't, the intentionality of it, it, it he, people don't fully assign that to him. But that is, you know, he, he thinks like a reality show producer. He thinks like, a, you know, and so I think we're going to see more of this. And I'm not sure it's going to change. And I think, you, you know, you're going to have to continue to wrestle with it. Everyone's going to have to continue to wrestle with it. Yeah. And it's something that people are fascinated by. I'm yeah. sure everywhere you go. Right. Uh, it's like people, he did what? Yeah. But also, what, people, what's he going to do next? People want you. People want to ask you about Trump. That's all yeah. they want to ask yeah, you about. They probably barely even ask you about Obama anymore. Yeah. I mean, and I know wherever I go, people want to inevitably somebody asks me how this movie's going to end. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah. Don't ask a journal. If you're looking for reassurance, don't ask a journalist. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just nonsense. And I don't doubt there will be a million more of these, you know, culture war issues. Let me ask you this, given uh, the things we've seen relative to the Russia probe and some of the uh, back and forth between the president, the FBI, the Justice Department, and so on. They're still on. attacking the FBI. You see this? They were blaming the FBI for Rob Porter's uh, domestic well, abuse. Yes. or And for the slow, they said the slow review of uh, yeah. of people for their, uh, for their uh, credentials. Um, what what was your level concern of, of concern about a constitutional crisis, an overreach, and what is the role? What what do you see your role as as a journalist in terms of of policing that? I mean, we went to you. You you were quite young during the Watergate era, but there was this sense that Woodward and Bernstein were, you know, pr- providing this sort of. Um, service in terms of shining a bright light on what looked like a and was a, a great constitutional crisis. Right, but they were also, I mean, they're heroes of mine and I will never, you know, I'm not I don't mean to to say anything to undermine the, their their importance in our society and in history. But it really was the FBI that was doing a lot of that work. Yes. Right. Well, and a lot of the leaking apparently. Yeah. I mean, um, Mark Felt was their right source. Um, so, but, but you're right. Saying, but, but you're right about that. They were doing the investigation. The indictments work. were going to come no matter what. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe they needed the cover. Maybe they needed the the country to know about what was going on in order to build the political support and the political will. Maybe that was part of it. Um, I am very cognizant of a, a constitutional crisis. I'm very cognizant of the potential for one. I'm very co- cognizant 
of the fact that we have actually really already had our Saturday Night Massacre, except it's just been several months long and involved several different people. But, um, you know, President Nixon uh, having Archibald Cox fired, um, you know, was one night. Uh, but we already have a president who has fired uh, an Yates, FBI director. Yeah, well, I don't really count Yates in that, but... Uh, but because she was an Obama holdover, but Comey and McCabe took a little while longer, mm-hmm. but but and still all the threats, constant threats to Mueller and to Rosenstein. We saw Rachel Band- Brand, the number three mm-hmm. at Justice, get out of Dodge, and mm-hmm. that was probably smart for her and her family. Um, so we've been seeing it, and you know, I, I I think it's very. Why do you say that 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 was smart for her and her family? Because she was about to, because th- because probably just the odds are, Rod Rosenstein is has not had his toughest day at work. Something's, so she might have been called upon... If he had to, been fired, she would have been the number three, yes. unless, unless she claimed a conflict of interest because her husband right. works for a law firm that represents some of the, some mm-hmm. of the players here. But she, and this is not, this is not a career-enhancing gig, <laughs> uh, working for the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is not, people are not... I mean, it's, it, in fact, it's people with uh, impe- impeccable reputations like John Kelly... Uh, are finding themselves sullied. Uh, Sean Spicer had a fantastic reputation, in my view, anyway. Yeah, he did. Um, as a as a uh, hail fellow, well met uh, spokesman for the RNC and strategist, and and you know, it's not the same now. Uh, and uh, I think that you know, I mean, you look at Ivanka Trump or Jared Kushner, people who had reputations and are having issues now. There are some still, uh, Mattis, McMaster, who are still okay, but. You know, I just think ultimately they offered her a lot of money to go work at Walmart. It was she was smart to take it. You're also about to become a published novelist yeah. uh, for the first time. The Hellfire Club, which is going to come out later this is April. April, is April twenty fourth. Yeah. Uh, tell, give me a, give me a, without spoiling it. Yeah, give me a, a little bit of a preview of that. So it's it takes place in 1954, Washington D.C. It's a young congressman and his zoologist wife. Um, are thrust into this town at the height of the Cold War. And a lot of different people from that era, actual people, Joe McCarthy and John F. Kennedy and President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon and others, Roy Cohn, are characters in the book. And it's kind of a traditional Washington thriller, but I tried to base, you know, but but with actual people and with actual events that took place uh, at the time that people might not know about. For instance, a lot of people don't know that on March 1st, 1954, a bunch of Puerto Rican terrorists burst into the House chamber and shot it up and shot five congressmen. Um, they all survived. But, I mean, it was just a, a crazy time. Puerto Rican terrorists— Attacked the Blair House, too, right? Th- a couple years before, they tried to kill Truman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of them was killed, and they killed a, a White House police officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was a—so it was just a—it was fun to write. It was challenging. What, what, what caused you to want to do that? Um— just the uh, the amazing. Just I love history and reading about that time. I always thought the fifties have been kind of overlooked because they're sandwiched between World War II and the sixties, mm-hmm. so they don't get as, that much attention. But it was a crazy, swampy time of conspiracies and the U.S. just bursting with with uh, with money and with military might and um, and people like uh, w- watching it all happen and and trying to and just looking on with disbelief, whether they're looking on at, you know, the United States expanding overseas or at Senator McCarthy and his smear campaign. And it just seemed 
like it would be fun uh, to write, and it was very very challenging. Novels are mm-hmm. uh, in in some le- in some ways much tougher. Um, but emotionally, it was much more fun because the outpost was just heart wrenching to write and to interview these yeah. these people. And this was just, you know, at the end of the day, I could do something that I can't do at any other time in my life. I could just make it up. Crazy swampy time of conspiracies. Clearly, the stuff of novels. So. Well, <laughs> I, you know what they say. I don't know who said it, but um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot that happened in 1954, uh, especially with Senator McCarthy, yeah. that people will read about and it will resonate, I hope. Jake Tapper, great to be with you. I I appreciate your friendship and I uh, appreciate your uh, collaborating with you when I get the chance to do that. Yeah, we always love having you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.